Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion Podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. And I'm Christina Odone. Queen Victoria is inescapable at the moment. Daisy Goodwin's lavish television drama is in its second series, and we're promised a Christmas special. Judy Dench is triumphantly portraying the old queen on the big screen for the second time in the film Victoria and Abdul. Victoria may no longer be our longest-serving monarch, but interest in her political and cultural legacy never subsides. What we often forget, however, though she certainly didn't, is that she was a very determined, even bloody-minded, supreme governor of the Church of England. We're joined today by Ian Wilson, author of the most admired recent biography of Victoria, to discuss the religious legacy of, arguably... England's most Protestant monarch since Edward VI. This was a woman who, after the Church of England's high church wing emerged, demanded that the Archbishop of Canterbury, quote, should have the power given him by Parliament to stop all these ritualistic practices, dressings, bowings, etc. And to Wilson, it's no secret that Victoria passed on her distaste for Catholic worship to later monarchs, perhaps even our own Queen. But there's not much evidence that Prince Charles, still less his son, sees himself as a defender of Protestant England. I wonder what Queen Victoria would have made of the religion of the next generations of the royal family, and indeed, what would she have made of the current Church of England? (laughs) Well, that's a very good question indeed, but I mean, what she'd have made of anything makes one's hair stand on end. I have a high church clergyman friend who loves bells and smells and wearing vestments and all that sort of thing. And he has a great devotion to Queen Victoria because he thinks without Queen Victoria, the Anglo-Catholic movement would never have got off the ground. And I think he's absolutely right about that. She was, as you say, completely obsessed by the thought that in her church there were clergymen hearing confessions. That was the thing that most horrified her. And she, actually, she inspired legislation that sent no, no, that's, some of these that's, that's, why, that's why my friend loves her so much, because in 1874 she persuaded Disraeli to bring in this thing called the Public Worship Regulation Act, which made it actually illegal for a clergyman to wear Catholic mass vestments. And at that stage, I think I'm right in saying there were only about ten churches in the whole of England that did that. Very few churches even had two candles on the holy table. By the end of Queen Victoria's reign, about half the Church of England had candles, vestments of some sort or another, perhaps just the colours still. In other words... Persecution was good for them. She persecuted them. She sent a few to jail. There was somebody called Father Arthur Tooth, who was, I think, the first ritualist and martyr. And after that, people realised they didn't want politicians or heads of state interfering in their religious lives. They also realised that Queen Victoria was basically speaking wrong from a historical point of view and that what the Tractarians and the Ritualists were doing was really carrying on a tradition which had always been there. Queen Elizabeth I had a Latin mass in her chapels. She had Talis and Bird singing settings of the mass. She insisted on Latin being the language of the liturgy, even for even song matins when she was around. And there was always the choral tradition carried on in the Church of England, in the cathedrals and in the Oxford and Cambridge colleges. And Archbishop Lord carried that further in the 17th century. There was only a short gap when Oliver Cromwell was in charge that this sort of high church stream, if you want to call it that, was actually part of the English national life. And Queen Victoria, of course, being a German Lutheran, had absolutely no consciousness of this. 
she detested the idea of double think in the church. She didn't mind Roman Catholics, by the way. It's quite wrong to think that she was an anti-Catholic person. And when she befriended the Empress Eugenie... Who came to live in, Su- came who came to, to live in Surrey, who didn't came she? came to live in Surrey. And when she went, for example, to the funeral of the Prince Imperial, she was tremendously impressed by the Catholic ritual and thought the bishops looked splendid in their mitres and so forth. <laughs> Extraordinary. So she, so she was a completely illogical person, as we all are, of course. But at the same time, there was a, a deep-seated fear of popery in the English public, at least until a certain point in, in the 19th century. Oh, there was, because, I mean, another extraordinary piece of legislation before the Disraeli Public Worship Regulation Act, there was the Lord John Russell bringing in the Ecclesiastical Titles Act, which made it illegal for the Roman Catholics to set up the Diocese of Middlesbrough and Birmingham and these other places. Which, which has landed us with the Diocese of Menevia, exactly. among others. Well, and over that, you see, that, that's, that shows what I mean. Queen Victoria thought Lord John was completely wrong to do that, and she was ter- terribly against it, and she didn't want the British government to be seen to be anti-Catholic, or indeed anti-Irish, as they obviously were bringing that in. Well, I mean, Christina, you being Italian, may be rather puzzled by some of this. I have found a wonderful paragraph in a, in a book about the ritualist persecutions, published by full manager of the Church Times years ago, called Bernard Palmer, and he says, the younger Tractarians, that's you know, the, the, the high churchman, hardly improved matters when, in imitation of the dress of Roman Catholic priests, they took to wearing what the evangelicals called Mark of the Beast waistcoats, which carried oh, up up to the cravat without dividing, and long straight coats reaching down to the heels. That's rather wonderful. That is course, wonderful. For us, it's very hard to realise that the signs and signals given off by ordinary men's clothes in the 19th century. For instance, I mean, when John Henry Newman came down to breakfast in 1845 in Littlemore with his little gang of high church friends, and he was wearing trousers, they realised he no longer believed in the validity of his orders. Oh, my gosh. Because if he had, he'd have been wearing britches. (laughs) So, I mean, that's the sort of thing which which I think would be rather lost on us. And similarly, those waistcoats you described ended with what was called the Roman Collar, now, uh, Unitarian ministers in Stranthorpe wear Roman yeah, collars. I mean, collar. the Reverend Ian Paisley wore Roman collars. Yes. Uh, but a, a proper Protestant... At one stage, liberal Jewish rabbis wore it they as did. well. But, I mean, proper Protestant clergymen would wear a white tie, sub for Oxford in senior or something like that. One of the things that you bring out in your book, The Victorians, which I was rereading, delight, delighting in your vim in terms of your style, Gladstone was absolutely the arch defender of Parliament's role in protecting the church, and it was the Church of England. I know that she had mixed feelings about Gladstone, and yet wasn't this precisely... I don't think they were very mixed. (laughs) But wasn't this precisely how she saw the role of Parliament, to defend her church? Gladstone and, as Damien says, Gladstone and Victoria had a terrible relationship. And it was certainly made worse by the fact that Gladstone was himself a high churchman. He was also, he was part of that stream that I've described, of a broad high church stream coming right back from the 17th century. He wasn't particularly spiky or wasn't ever going to go over to Rome, though many of his friends did, such as Manning. When Lord John Russell brought in that thing called, called the Ecclesiastical Titles Act, Gladstone baited the Queen, but pointed out to her that the Roman Catholics in law were perfectly entitled to call themselves what they liked. And, for example, I mean, he said there was no reason at all why there shouldn't be a Roman Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury alongside the Protestant one, as there is in Ireland. There are two Archbishops of Armagh. And that really did make uh, the top of Queen Victoria's head 
smoke him out of our ears. Yes, spouting steam. So it might be worth pointing out, and I, I only discovered this recently. So I, sh- I should have worked it out that even today, it is strictly speaking, according to Debrett's form of address, it, it, it is wrong. You will not get a letter from Buckingham Palace addressed to. His Grace, the Archbishop of Westminster, should he, should he not be? No, I know. So on what's the on Father Ted, they, that was the one mistake they always made, that they called the bishops Your Grace. Your Grace is for the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of York, and English dukes. But we Catholics, as we call ourselves, you call us Roman Catholics, but uh, we, we Catholics do address archbishops as oh, I see. Your I'm Grace. Well, case, and there's the most reverend, but nonetheless... Your grace is a title which, you know, in whether it's conventional or English law or, or, or whatever, is reserved, as you say, for for dukes and for um, the two archbishops. The, the two archbishops, and therefore I didn't know that, you will sorry. not get I a did, letter, even though you know Archbishop Smith of Southwark might be addressed as Your Grace. You won't, you know, you will not. The Queen a, wouldn't address him. The Queen would that. most certainly no. not address him that way. Nor would you get actually an official letter from the civil service addressing him that way. But we're running down a bit of a rabbit warren. You mentioned Christine the Royal Parliament. Yes. Surely, Anne Wilson, the Queen saw herself as the ultimate guarantor of the Protestantism of the English Church by virtue of her coronation. She certainly did. She certainly did. And, I mean, for example, one of the things she regarded as dangerous about Gladstone's Irish policy long before he advocated home rule was that he supported the disestablishment of the Irish Church, which she thought was, quite rightly, the beginning of the the end. And she did think that it was her role and Parliament's role to defend the established, by that she meant Protestant church. And she had taken a vow at her coronation, as has our present monarch, to uphold the Protestant religion. Is it the only occasion on which the word Protestant is used in... The liturgy of the church. In the liturgy of the church. Yes. yes. It doesn't, the word doesn't occur in the Book of Common Prayer, for example. Yes. Um, I didn't know that. Which does raise the question. I, I remember years ago writing a piece about the, insofar as I could discern them, the private religious beliefs of the royal family. And the Queen seems to have inherited her religion from her grandfather, George V, who inherited it from Queen Victoria. Clearly, the Queen is no sort of religious bigot. In fact, I I think she's a very, very fine Christian leader, but she likes her religion to be of the low church prayer book variety. It's interesting that she receives Holy Communion only four times a year, always in private, so that when she goes to Sandringham, for the main service, she will have been to receive communion earlier in the day. Yes. Which sometimes I think um, is That's something they get, they get from Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert believed that they shouldn't be seen receiving the sacrament. And quite often, though this is in, in a sense rather a high church kind Isn't of Isn't it? Yes. yes. They went privately, um, for example, in the Isle of Wight, they always went to a weekday communion. Uh, they spent days preparing for it. They took it extremely seriously. And there's a very sharp letter which I found the other day in Windsor Castle from Prince Albert to poor Bertie. You wouldn't think that Bertie was a very keen church to a future Edward VII, but he wrote saying, um, some of the chaps down here, he was when he just joined the army, of thinking of going off, toddling off to Holy Communion, rather jolly, don't you think? And he got this absolute stinker from Prince Albert saying, uh, you can't just toddle off to Holy Communion, you have to prepare for it. It's most undignified to be seen receiving the sacrament. Your mother and I make a thing of only receiving it very, very seldom. Now, I, I think there's plenty of evidence that aspects of that 
theology are still adhered to by members of the royal family of, of the sure, older generation. I'm sure they are. For example, when, when the General Synod was inaugurated in, in 1970, the Queen was most unhappy that its opening service took the form of a Eucharist. It was explained to her that we are a Eucharistic church, and I'm not sure that that is the way she, 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 would look see, at it. she mm. sees it. And I still do think, Andrew, she still sees herself in an entirely benevolent way as a guarantor of the Protestant identity of the Church of England. I quite honestly don't know. Because I don't know anything about the Queen. I know a lot about Queen Victoria, but I know very, very little about her. Well, I think it's part of her genius that we know. Of course, it's part of her genius, but I would guess that you're absolutely right. And the funny thing about that form of religion, which, as far as I can tell, was exactly the same as my own mother's religion, it was low church, it wasn't evangelical. My mother would have. Yes, indeed. My mother would have regarded Holy Trinity Brompton as vulgar and embarrassing. But she would go off to the early service in the Church of England, she always called it the early service, and that, that was her religion. I was and told she died clutching the Book of Common Prayer, my mother. I think that kind of religion has, has died with that generation, and when the Queen dies, there'll be hardly anybody left in England who is like that, who is low but not evangelical. But not evangelical. And who is basically uh, their religion all tied up with that now slightly threatened book. Yes. So if we can, yes. if, if, Christine, if you could give us just a second while... Andrew and I just sort of finish our slightly anorak but very enjoyable discussion about liturgical matters. It's a game, but I think how baffled Queen Victoria would be by the present Church of England. Anglo-papalism, with all due respect to your friend, I guess who it is, is a bit of a spent force. Oh, totally. I've never liberal, been liberal, liberal theology of, of a type which has been completely abhorrent to, to Queen Victoria and probably not that attractive to the present Queen turns out to be compatible with Catholic ceremonial, well, even to the extent where liberal evangelicals wear chasubles. Meanwhile, as, as you have just said, old prayer book Protestantism, not evangelical, has died out. And evangelicalism, often where it thrives, full, full-blooded evangelicalism, has taken on a sort of American charismatic flavour, which Queen Victoria would have found quite extraordinary, particularly she would, as it's happening that. in a church like Holy Trinity Brompton, which incidentally I'm admire as a Christian community, but nonetheless... No, but she wouldn't have recognised anything She wouldn't have liked the, it. You know, the but, I mean, you remember when, when... This is an irrelevance in a sense, but it's just a good phrase, that when King George V drove over from Sandringham to see the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham, Church of England, he, he gazed around in amazement and said, is this my church? Well, I think if Queen Victoria were brought back to life and was taken to almost any Anglican church today, she would ask that question, is this my church? And one would have to say in, in many ways, no, ma'am, it's not. Can we I think it's them? departed so far. Yes. Can we depart now from yes. ceremonials? Yes. Because my, eyes, it, my eyes are glazing. But incidentally, I don't think Damien's right about... The, the one aspect with which the Queen would have had great sympathy, I mean Victoria, is what, what he calls liberalism. She was basically a theological liberal. Mm. And I mean, one of her favourite clergymen was Charles Kingsley. Absolutely, she asked him to whom be, she to, she to asked to tutor her children. And he was, you know, he was extremely wishy-washy when it came to whether the resurrection had taken place or that yes. sort of thing. Yes, he was much more interested in Christian socialism. Had she picked, do you think she picked that up from the German biblical yes. scholarship? Yes. Yes. She didn't read the German biblical scholarship, but her, two of her daughters did. And Alice, her daughter Alice, was tremendous friends with a lot of those Tübingen theologians, particularly with the one called Strauss. And Alice completely lost her religion, became an atheist. How fascinating. Let's bring it down to modern-day nostalgia for Victoria, which, and I think it's rooted in young people's moralising fervour. Youngsters of today are just in tune 
with Victorian morality. They wag their fingers, they tell us, you know, they preach at us about how we should be defending the rights of minorities while censoring any kind of free thought. And I wonder whether that is something that has reawakened in the wake of Victoria. Well, I mean, I would agree with you that we live in a world of double standards, but I wouldn't agree with you that we're following Victorian patterns of behaviour in regard to sex. No, but the moralising, the moralising finger wagging. <laughs> You're very a, diplomatic in your biography on the subject of Ugandan affairs. Anyway, let's leave no, that. No, we can over there. <laughs> yes, but, but I mean, I agree with you that the present generation of young people, I think that in, in a way, you see, the Victorians weren't religious. Everyone no, thinks they because, were they, uh, because the, some Victorians built neo-Gothic churches. Everyone thinks everybody in Victorian England was religious. They weren't. Nobody batted an eyelid in 1859 when Charles Darwin published a book, as he thought, showing there wasn't a god. They'd, they had given up thinking that for, for years. Most ordinary people, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, they thought that it was good to set some of their life-changing moments, such as birth of a baby or death of granny, to music and, and the music of the Book of Common Prayer, but they weren't religious in this no, the, the working classes didn't go to church. Working classes never went to church, and as Chesterton said, by the end of the century, atheism was the religion of the suburbs. Yes. And I'm sure that was absolutely true. But what they loved doing, and actually human beings have always loved doing, is having double standards, and on the one hand, thinking that things which other people did were all wrong and things which you did or thought were all right. And you're quite right to say that the present generation of people, particularly the Corbynistas, the young ones, but really are up to the age of 40, are incredibly moralistic, just as the Victorians were. Though, of course, the Victorians were hypocrites about sex. Yes. And we are hypocrites about such things as climate change and recycling. I mean horror of horrors at home if my 19-year-old daughter sees me throwing a yogurt carton in the wrong bin. But, yes. I mean, she's perfectly happy to take holidays on EasyJet with her boyfriend, gobbling up the planet. I mean, that's the same kind of double thing as a Victorian father, on the one hand, preaching morality to his sons, and on the other hand, going off to a brothel. Yes, and I think it's, it's so interesting. But, but also interesting is there's a kind of rejection of capitalist greed which the Christian socialists tapped into. And although they had only a very brief moment, as you chronicle, they really captured the imagination of the young of that time. And I think that there's something in the Corbinistas that really is Christian socialism without the Christian. I agree with you completely about that. And I think, I mean, people forget how mainstream the Christian socialists were. Charles Kingsley, whom we've already mentioned, author of The Water Babies, possibly the most popular children's book, apart from Alice in Wonderland, ever written in the 19th century, was a Christian socialist. The author of Tom Brown's School Days, Thomas Hughes, started a, a, a Christian socialist commune in the United States called Rugby, Tennessee. And, you know, he believed it was rather like a kind of grand kibbutz. Yes, yes. You should hold your goods in common, like the, the apostles in the Acts of the Apostles. So uh, you're quite right to say that there was, because the 19th century was so materialistic and worship of mammon was so utter and total as it is now, there's a natural reaction to that, never mind the, the, what Iris Maddock called the mythology of Christianity, but the basic notion that we shouldn't live for ourselves and that we should live for other people and that material goods are not all that there is, is at the core of Corbynista's beliefs. Yes, and, and, and I remember Kingsley wrote, the state is as much God's creation as the church's. And of course, that is where some of the traditionalists like Damien would just 
call foul. Well, no, I mean, just a little pause to remember what the consequences of this ideology often turn out to be. Yes, I agree, um, but but I think that there's... We we know that. We know that uh, socialist experiments, particularly when divorced from the rather diluted form of Christianity that it had in Charles Kingsley's case, became very, very dangerous uh, uh, across China and Eastern Europe and everything else. Nobody's denying that. But on the other hand, if you're more moderate, as I am, because I'm a wishy-washy, you think actually that when John Ruskin wrote unto this last and said that he was a Tory of the old school but that the lives of the poor were being destroyed by the strength of the market and therefore it was the state's duty, the God-created state's duty, to intervene and to buck the market. Mrs Thatcher said, you can't buck the market, but Ruskin said, you must. And, uh, and things such as old age pensions uh, and licking a stamp for Mr Asquith and so on, that was all responsibility ultimately, of Ruskin and the Christian Socialists. I see a direct line to Jeremy Corbyn. And, I mean, uh, in the old days, the little red book for the Labour Party wasn't The Thoughts of Chairman Mao, it was Under This Last by John Ruskin. And he was the most influential person. I wonder if we could wind the discussion back. Sorry, we've left left poor Queen Victoria behind. Well, let's return to Queen Victoria, who, after all, is on the cinema screens. She's the subject of our story. She's inescapable. Incidentally, how very unlike the real Queen Victoria, I suspect, Judy Dench is, wonderful actress though she is. I mean, you'd have to be fat and pissed, really, to convey the real woman, wouldn't you? uh, Yes, if we were having a podcast about Judy Dench, I'd want to say a lot about that. But I rather love that film, because I think what it does is she says things which Queen Victoria would never, ever have said, but which we all know to be true about Queen Victoria. So it's a sort of dramatisation of what's going on inside our heads, not what's going on. Well, look, you've mentioned that Queen Victoria's religious uh, imagination was perhaps livelier and and her thoughts more nuanced than They were very nuanced. Nonetheless, she wielded tremendous influence as Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Prince Charles will inherit the same role, but first of all, it's not clear what influence he has, and secondly, it's not clear what he wants to do with it, and still less with his son. I think it really is worth noting that, that neither William nor Harry have shown the slightest interest in religion. No, they Even haven't. compared to their cousins. No, they haven't. So I wonder if, just, just to wind up, <laughs> Aaron Wilson, we, well, we could ask you to play a little sort of imaginary game, prophesy, perhaps. Perhaps try and discern the shape of the relationship between the royal family and, and English religion. Well, it's a good question. I mean, one of the questions which lurks like a nightmare behind, in the minds of conservative-minded people, is the coronation service, which the next coronation service. We've already mentioned that it contains a vow to uphold the Protestant religion. That will almost certainly be removed. And once it's removed, you will have the question, Prince Charles has already said he wants to be defender of faiths, plural. I don't know what that means, but he said it. It, It'll mean that the chief rabbi, uh, leader of the whirling dervishes, the various Muslims and so on, they will all say that they are entitled and that their people will feel extremely hurt if they're not brought into Westminster Abbey. You will therefore have and atheists. And you will I then have humanists. Then you will have a speech well, yeah. by the by Professor Richard Dawkins and so on. And it would yes. be something it would be something dream. But by that stage I suspect we'll have converted to something. Oh yes well, they, they, but anyway, yes. They yes. But anyway it would be something dreamed up by Dean Swift. It would be an absurdity beyond imagination. And whether they just decide to to drop having a, a religious ceremony at all. Frederick the Great, after all, just being a non-believer, he just proclaimed himself to be the king of Prussia from a balcony and somebody fired off a gun. And one could do that. 
But I, I suspect the television companies all over the world would regret not having some very elaborate ceremony. But I suspect Prince Charles would rather enjoy standing on a balcony and proclaiming his own. <laughs> I think he will have. Supremacy. I think he will have a coronation ceremony. But I, I know. I'm not just speculating. I know that all the people who are involved in the next coronation ceremony are having kittens, basically, because they just don't know what form it can possibly take, well, and they, they are terrified of him saying, "Let's have it for all the faiths." I, I mean, uh, my guess is that my guess is that it will be an aesthetic and theological Jumble. horror, but a musical treat. Everything in Westminster Abbey is a musical treat. True. And so that once they can just keep playing the music, it should be all right. And we can have, you know, Perry and I was glad when they said unto me, etc., blasting out and possibly, if, if the crowd could be persuaded to sing through the awful words that should be spoken. <laughs> Which is true. And as it happens, Prince Charles is a great admirer of, not just, a, I was glad, but of Parry's symphony is one of the very few no, subjects on which I agree with him. No, he knows a lot about Parry, but I suspect that it would be the most awful mishmash. And of course, if, supposing Prince Charles died before the next coronation, then you would be absolutely certain that the, the Middleton coronation would be as friendly and dynamic and vibrant as it could be. <laughs> on that note, Aaron Wilson, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>